Amen. Amen. Friends, you can be seated. <laughs> well, it's great to see everybody. Uh, good morning. My name is Andy, and I'm one of the pastors here. And let me just say happy Father's Day uh, to all you fathers out there. And if, if you're a, a, a guy and, and uh, you're, you're not a father yet or, or maybe uh, won't be, uh, you have influence. And so uh, I want to remind you that even on this Father's Day, uh, you're to be celebrated and, and uh, God is to be invited into this, this day. It's not a sacred holiday, is it? It's a Hallmark holiday, I think. And yet, uh, fatherhood matters to God. Amen? Amen. So praise God for that. Well, if you would please uh, turn in your copy of the scriptures to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start right at the very beginning of Scripture this morning, and I'm kind of excited about it. So uh, you can turn there, and it's not hard to find. A uh, very first verse in all of Scripture, and uh, we'll get there in just a minute. Friends, the, the world has been changing rapidly over the last several years, hasn't it? Anybody aware of that? In his, in his famous 1961 speech, uh, JFK uh, talked about going to the moon, and he said this. He said, no man can fully grasp how far and how fast we've come. Right? No man can fully grasp how far and how fast we've come. If he said that in the 1960s, I wonder what he would say today, right? I read an article this week where that reality hit kind of close to home, where the reality of how fast our world is changing, not, not so much technologically, although that's true, but also socially, also even morally, I might say. And it's a reality that a lot of us feel but we, but we find it hard to talk about sometimes. See, this article described, and this will be kind of sobering, okay? This article described a major movie maker that was about to release one of its typically blockbuster children's films. And in one of the, same, in one of the scenes, two of the characters share not only a same-sex romantic relationship, but they also share a same-sex kiss, okay? And of course, the, the scenes created quite some controversy, Initially, the producers cut the scene, but after news got out, the people in their studio uh, uh, kind of revolted. They sent an open letter to the producers, and they ended up putting it back in. Certainly, uh, it's quite a, quite a change from the days of Cinderella and Snow White. Amen? And what's particularly striking about the commentary surrounding the release of the film is that for many, the inclusion of the kiss uh, was about so much more than just one point on a plot line. On the contrary, for many, the kiss was symbolic of what they might say was a necessary and major moral and cultural advancement, something to be commended, not, not condemned or shied away from. And this reflects the, the narrative in our current culture in so many ways, doesn't it? That reckoning authentically with one's uh, sexual orientation or gender identity is the presenting, if not fundamental, uh, issue in how one experiences what we might call the good life. And then until one embraces uh, certain sexual persuasions, hetero or homo, or, or certain notions of, of gender, male, female, or, or anything else in between, uh, one cannot be satisfied. One cannot enjoy the good life. And so the push in the mainstream is to include as many examples as possible of these varying expressions of, of sexual and gender identity such that, that everyone can, quote, see a piece of themselves in the story. And at one level, this sounds very compassionate, doesn't it? I mean, of course, we as Christians affirm that everyone is significant to God. Say amen to that. It's true. Everyone is significant to God regardless of what they struggle with. And we recognize that what qualifies us for the kingdom of heaven is not our works, but it's God's grace extended through Jesus Christ. May I have an amen to that? That's true. Therefore, anyone who turns to Christ in faith can be saved. 
that said, in our compassion for those who might struggle with the effects of varying forms of sin, including same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria and heterosexual lust, and, and you name it, it's important that we recognize what, what's happening culturally. See, our, our culture is redefining the metrics for what makes the good life. And on top of that, it's, it's very quickly becoming taboo to challenge these new definitions. It's called hate speech or otherwise. Hence, when one of the lead actors of this movie was asked about those who preferred that the same-sex kiss be left out of the movie, he responded pretty harshly. He said, the real truth is those people are idiots. And every time there's been social advancement as we wake up, the American story, the, the human story, is one of constant social awakening and growth, and that's what makes us good. Now, apart from the idiot comment... It sounds compelling, doesn't it? I mean, if you think about it, it sounds compelling. Who doesn't want social awakening and growth and advancement? I mean, today is a national holiday, a newly enshrined national holiday called Juneteenth. And, and who among us would wish to return to the days of colonial America when slavery was a, a part of our legal system? It was allowed. None of us want that. None of us want to go back to the 1950s when Jim Crow enabled systemic racism throughout our, our country. Nonetheless, the actor's statement is troubling. See, the actor defines good as social advancement. Okay? He defines good as social advancement, as social awakening and, and growth, implying that change in itself is what's good. But I ask, is it? Is change what is good? Is that really what good is? And see, what if, what if his statement ignores a greater reality? Well, what if the notion of good isn't something to be achieved through social progress and advancement and change, but instead is to be recovered from something that was lost? See, as society constantly redefines its notion of good, we need but look around to observe that we haven't gotten very far, have we? I mean, sure, some aspects of our culture have become better, praise God. It's incredibly important that slavery was abolished in the 19th century. And can any, but, but can anyone really say that sin has less influence now than it did 150, 200 years ago? I, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think many would make that claim. And see, the results are that loneliness persists. Tribalism still exploits. Violence still destroys. Church, depravity isn't new. <laughs> it just takes on different forms depending on what season we're in. And see, with, with all the so-called progress in our world, we're, we're still not in a good place, are we? And so I asked this morning, is it possible that our pursuit of good, though well-intended, may have become misguided somewhere along the way? Is, is it possible that culturally we're looking for good in all the wrong places? Is it possible that though our instincts might tell us to look for good, as the actor said, through social awakening and, and growth and advancement, what we really need to do is not look to our future, but instead to look to our past. Now, it's important when I say that, that I define what I mean, right? What is our past? And church, when I say our past, I'm not talking about the 1950s when Ward Cleaver was on TV, all right? As nostalgic as that may be for some of us who existed around that time, I, I didn't, all right? That's, that's further back than me. As nostalgic as, as that may be, that's not what I'm talking about. When I say our past, I mean going further back. <laughs> and, I, and I mean way further, okay? I'm talking about the beginning. 
I'm talking about the dawn of history. And see, as we work through Genesis 1 through 11 this summer, we're going to see that the good life was something already within our grasp. We had it right there. It was modeled to us. It was provided for us. We had every blessing right there in front of us. But as soon as our notion of the good life became tainted with our sin, with our pride, with our selfishness, with our lust for power and all kinds of other things, we've been struggling as a society to recover the good life ever since. And as we keep coming up with solutions that are antithetical to God's design, we don't actually make things better. We make them worse. And so with that, we go to the text. We go to Genesis chapter 1. Now, before we read it, I want to give you some context here, okay? In the ancient Near East, when Moses wrote the five books of the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis included, sin had already taken root. And people were expressing uh, the good life, at least their notion of it, in many and varying aberrant forms, and in, ma- in many false forms. And, and rather than uh, the more modern pursuits of, of humanism and secularism and materialism, in the ancient Near East, the dominant cultural motifs were, were paganism, were, were pluralism, the worship of many gods, were authoritarianism. If people could just perform what the gods wanted and appease them, if they could just placate the king by acting in obedience, then they could experience safety and peace. They, they could live the good life. That, that was the dominant culture in, in the ancient Near East at the time when Genesis was written. Not secular, but pagan. Okay, you with me? And so naturally, just as modern culture threatens biblical thinking and practice, so too the Israelites experienced the same kinds of threats. And in fact, they often gave in to them. The Israelites engaged in idol worship and other forms of, of pagan, pagantry, if you will, uh, at many times throughout their history. Hence, as God leads the Israelites away from the paganism of Egypt and into Canaan, which was, which was also predominantly influenced by pagan cultures, he inspires Moses to write the Pentateuch, and he inspires Moses to go back to the very beginning, to the, to the, to the beginning of creation. And he does it to warn the Israelites, to, 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 to demonstrate to them, look, all the pursuits of the good life that are around you, that don't start with the true beginning, with with God, the one true creator, they end up in futility. And so with that, we go to Genesis chapter 1. And you can probably recite it with your eyes closed. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now church, as we consider this, this modern pursuit of the good life, we have to recognize how our thinking has been influenced See, uh, Darwinian naturalists have been making the claim for, for over 150 years that there's nothing more to our universe than what science can demonstrate, okay? We're simply products of, of neutrons and protons and synapses with no greater meaning. Uh, Carl Sagan, a famous philosopher and scientist, a spokesperson for this line of thinking, once said, the cosmos is all there is or, or has been or will be. This is a secular worldview that accounts for life apart from God. Now, In parallel form, the the worldview in the time of Moses, as we've said, was not secular, but pagan, okay? They're both uh, divergent from our narrative in the the Bible, but one is secular today, one is pagan in the ancient Near East. And just as Carl uh, Sagan has his explanation of origins, so in the ancient Near East, there were all kinds of pagan explanations. And none of them, as you can imagine, credited the God of Israel. 
except one. But church, Genesis 1-1 stands in direct opposition to both of those worldviews. It says, in the beginning, God. See, church, as we've already sung about this morning, God predates creation. God exists before creation. Creation before, or creator before creation. God exists eternally as, as Trinity. We sang about that, Father, Son, and Spirit. And contrary, and contrary to the, the prevailing pagan explanations uh, like that, which, which tried to claim that the gods came from some primordial waters with, with some male gender and female gender mixing, and all of a sudden gods popped out, uh, Moses clarifies. He says, look, God has always been. God has no beginning. In the beginning, God, what, what now is, comes from him. Thus, in, in any part of the good life, apart from God is its designer. Thus, any pursuit of the good life, apart from God is its designer, is futile. It's futile. God is the creator. God is the creator. And so what did God create? <laughs> well, praise God. Uh, Moses tells us, Genesis 1-2 begins with creation under construction. Look at this. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God creates the heavens and the earth, but, but there's no form to it yet. Just one primordial wash saved the Spirit, hovering, musing, stirring, preparing, to, to create with unspeakable glory. Now I imagine the spirit hovering over the, the waters of the earth in verse 2 like, like a painter who's about to, to create a masterpiece. I, I imagine this, this artist closing her eyes and visualizing her masterpiece and, 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 and deciding which direction she's going to go. And then, and then slowly and methodically and intentionally she breathes deep and she lifts her brush to the canvas and she makes her first stroke. Here in verse 2, God prepares his canvas for his masterpiece. And in verse 2, it's formless and void. It's an empty canvas. It's blank. But the maestro is about to begin. <laughs> Let's watch. Verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Notice verse 3. It says, and God what? And God said, God spoke, church. God's paintbrush is not a stick with Brussels on the end. <laughs> Bristles, Brussels, I don't know. Brussels is in Belgium, isn't it? <laughs> church, God's paintbrush is his word. He speaks and creation comes forth. And here's the thing, the, the, the secular naturalists claim that the cosmos occurs randomly. We know from the book of Genesis that, that creation is tied inextricably to God's word, to God's creative design. Uh, just over a week ago, I was sitting in the wilderness with my two sons and, and my dad on a lake in the wilderness, and it was awesome. <laughs> and when I looked up at the sky, I could see God's creative handiwork. And when I looked down on the still water, I saw the trees reflecting, and I thought, there is somebody behind this. There's somebody working here. There's somebody creative way beyond my ability <laughs> to paint a beautiful scene. The God of eternity spoke these things into being, praise God. God begins with, with, with a splash of light, a splash of brilliant light. And you know what it does? It, it immediately separates the darkness from the light. The, the, the darkness is overcome with the light of God. Church, when God creates, light shines. And isn't it interesting? <laughs> light comes on day one. 
This is the first day. There's no sun yet. There's no moon yet. There are no stars yet. Where does the light come from? I love this. 1 John 1, 5 tells us, God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. You know, many in the ancient Near East tried to claim that the sun and the moon and the stars were deities worthy of worship. But Moses refutes that claim right up front on day one. He he says, the one true God doesn't need the sun and the moon and the stars. The one true God makes his own light. Sun and moon have nothing on him. And note, God separates the dark from the light. They're not the same thing. God, God has been distinguishing darkness and light, good and evil, from the very first day, from the very beginning. And just as he would call the Israelites to stand out from the nations around them, to be separate, to be holy from the other nations, so also he creates light to be separate from the darkness. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. (laughs) What does God do next? Verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Once again, God speaks and God separates, this time water from sky. Next, verse 9, God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. The canvas, with increasing complexity, begins to reveal the master creator. The one who is, is, is casting his paint onto the beautiful canvas. Day three, God creates the land and the plants. Verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Now even more detail, church. God God speaks and the sun and the moon and the stars come into existence. And if the point weren't already completely clear, uh, here it is again. It's unmistakable. The, the pagan celestial deities that are, that are popular in the ancient Near Eastern culture are but inanimate objects and, and are but inanimate products of God's creative design. There is one true God of all creation. And it's not the sun and it's not the moon and it's not the stars. It's only God, Elohim, Yahweh. The luminaries are created things. There's only one creator. Keep reading. Verse 20. 
And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Now, now the birds and the sea creatures... And no, this time the creation comes with God's blessing, verse 22. And I want you to notice how the blessing strengthens Moses' argument. See, the pagans considered the sea and its creatures to be a place of evil. Uh, Evil gods resided in the sea. But Moses makes clear, look, the sea, even the sea, even the sea creatures in the sea are products of God's creative design. Therefore, God blesses them. They, they too are a product of, product of God's good pleasure. Hence, there is no power in the sea that is not subservient to the creator. And we continue. Verse 24, and God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. On day six, God finally creates the land animals. And then finally, at the peak of his creative endeavor, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to every thing that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Finally, God's creative voice has a listening and discerning audience. God creates a people and they hear God speak to them, be fruitful and multiply. And they know they're part of God's masterpiece. God's God's creation is complete. Every brush brush stroke meticulously placed, each according to its design. Now, there's so much to glean about humanity here from these verses. That's why next week we're going to spend more time on Genesis 1, uh, basically 26 through 31. Okay, So I invite you to come back next week. How's that for a cliffhanger, huh? But for now, notice this. The product of God's creative design in all the days was what gets repeated throughout the narrative. And God saw that what? It was good. It was good. God was happy with what he created. All of it. 
the light from the dark, the sky from the seas, the land from the water, the luminaries and the birds and the sea creatures and the animals. It was all good. But then notice this. Isn't this amazing? It's only once humanity enters the scene that God once again sees, but this time, he says what? It is very good. It is very good. God looks on his creation, those created in his image. He says, this is very good. And see, in humanity, God places his image. He places his unique imprint separate from the rest of creation. Thus, thus he tells them, like bird and fish, be, multi- be fruitful and multiply. But not only that, he says to humanity, I want you to exercise a unique role in all of creation. I want you to fill the earth and I want you to subdue it. I have, a, I have a plan for you, a unique plan, separate, once again, from everything else. Have dominion over fish and bird and beast. And, and we're going to talk more about that next week and the weeks coming as well. But for now, let's keep reading. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And church, with these verses, we arrive at the main point of the passage. See, it's, it's here that Moses reveals to us not, not just the form of creation, not, not just how God put the world together, but also now why God created. He reveals to us creation's function, its, its purpose. And see, the biblical account does have much to say about how the earth was formed. It reveals creator before creation. That's a, that's a key theological principle. We hang our hats on that. God exists prior to everything else, eternally. In the beginning, God created. We we call it ex nihilo. He creates from nothing. The the earth was formless and void. Then God spoke. Then creation came under construction. And, And through the course of six days, God created not only the heavens and the earth, but also its inhabitants. And it was good. In fact, it was very good. And frankly, it's kind of easy to stop there in our thinking and to to treat Genesis 2, 1 through 3 as an afterthought. To say, okay, now we know the origin story. We know where we come from. We exist not by happenstance, but instead by miraculous design. Very good. Thank you. Let's move on. But church, if we simply relegate the Genesis account to the form of creation, we miss what I'm convinced is the most significant part. See, on day 7, God rested. God rested. Now, does that mean that God got tired? <laughs> does that mean he got sleepy? Right? Like I get tired sometimes. Like you get tired. Does anybody get tired around here? We get tired, right? We're people. God didn't get tired. He's God. He's limitless. We sang about it earlier. See, there's something more to God's rest here than simply taking a break, all right? And this is fascinating. See, many of the pagan religions against whom Moses is arguing employed seven-day motifs that are strikingly similar to the Genesis account in chapter 1. 
There are significant correlations between a lot of these pagan origin stories and these pagan uh, concepts of, of who God is between their concept and God and, and, and Genesis. And, and the purpose of these seven-day mo- motifs in these pagan religions is often to describe the process of dedicating temples for pagan gods and then inaugurating those gods into their place to reign in their temple. And the Israelites would have been very familiar with these kinds of narratives. Uh, six days of dedication. On day seven, the God is inaugurated as the king of the land, of the nation. And everybody uh, pledged their allegiance to that God. One, one example is, is uh, from King Gudea. He's the king of Samaria. And, and he built a temple for the God, and this is a tricky one, Ningirsu. Okay? That's on the test, so write it down. I'm just kidding. And in the Sumerian account, the, the, the dedication of the temple lasted, guess how long? Seven days, seven days. And it describes in detail the varying functions of the temple along with what we call its functionaries. Its functionaries. Those entities, people and otherwise, who were to participate in the active working of the temple. See, a temple was never just a building. There were people, there were articles within that temple in order for it to carry out its function. And the details in the Sumerian account, fascinatingly, have little to do with the temple's architecture and much to do with the temple's activity, its function. And see, church, as Moses' original readers would have been very familiar with this kind of operation in the ancient Near East, Moses makes a profound point as he articulates the creation account in the way that he does. And he does it in partnership with God by his spirit. See, God has designed his own temple. (laughs) Not built of bronze and gold, but built of earth and sky, land and sea. God, God created the cosmos as God's temple. And this is the function of creation. And its functionaries, its inhabitants, guess what? They're you and me. The inhabitants are those described in days one through six. Most importantly, those created in God's image. See, God not only created his temple, he also furnished it. And church, as as an image of the pagan god would be brought in, an idol would be brought into that temple on day seven, it reflects the greater reality that the one true God rested with his people on the seventh day. Not, not Not just a pagan false image of God, but God himself came to rest in the cosmos, in his temple, with his people. I love that. And it's important to note, church, the the concept of cosmos as God's temple doesn't doesn't simply rest on the argument of the correlation between the ancient Near Eastern texts and the Genesis account. It'd be a weaker argument were that the case. But but, but the Bible itself confirms this notion. In Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, it says, Thus says the Lord, this is God speaking, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Isaiah says, the Lord created his own temple with the work of his hands, with the sound of his voice. Also, Psalm 78, 69, he built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he's founded forever. Even if you you go to the construction of the tabernacle in Exodus uh, chapter 39, as you compare it to Genesis 1 and 2, which we don't have time for today, you're welcome, all right? Uh, You you find all kinds of correlations, okay? 
There's all kinds of correlations between the building of the tabernacle and God's construction of the cosmos, his temple. Church, God created the heavens and the earth to function as his dwelling place. The cosmos was God's choice of residence and humanity his choice of co-inhabitants. <laughs> and it was good. It was very good. He thought of everything. Verse 29 again. I love this. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit and you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. Do you think God forgot anything? No, no, no. Everything's covered. (laughs) All of it. It was good. God gave creation everything it needed to live the good life. And church, notice this. After each of the previous six days, the text says there was morning and there was evening and the day was complete. But not on the seventh day. Not on the seventh day. On the seventh day, there's no such punctuation. Church, the seventh day, God's day for rest continues with God's everlasting reign. God's rest continues in his creation design. One commentator illustrates it like this. When a president of the United States is elected, he takes up his place of residence in what? In the White House, right? He rests in the White House, but guess what? His reign just begins, and he continues his reign. So to here, except even more, God begins to reside in his dwelling place in the cosmos But his reign has just begun. God sets up his place of residence and he invites us to enjoy his reign. But as we'll see, mankind is going to reject God's rest and God's reign. Hence the the predicament that I described earlier in our message. He'll intervene. God will intervene. Praise God. But it's going to hurt first. It's going to hurt. For now, given what we know, given God's creation design, what's our responsibility? What are our responsibilities? As functionaries within the temple, (laughs) what does God ask of us? In church, I'm convinced they're the same today as they were at the original creation. (laughs) We're to accept God's creative provision. Not to reinvent it, not to redefine it, but to accept what God has given us. As a gift. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But not just accept, also to enjoy. The Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I appreciate what John Piper uh, says about that. He says the chief end of man is to, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. He says God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him, church. God delights in us enjoying what He provides for us. For me, as a father, I delight in providing for my kids as best I can, and I really delight when they recognize that. (laughs) Church, God delights in providing for His children. We're invited to accept it and to enjoy it. And then finally, to share it with others. That's another conversation. We're going to have it in the coming weeks. You know, I would venture to say that some of you are frustrated this morning because you never feel like you're getting there. You're never quite there. You're always two steps behind the good life. You're angry, perhaps because you struggle with same-sex attraction. 
Perhaps because you struggle with your gender identity. Perhaps you can't stop looking at porn or your relationships just don't work right or you can never get ahead at work and things just don't work and you're frustrated and maybe you're angry. Friend, I I hate to break it to you. Our world is broken. It's broken. The world is not functioning according to God's design. And so, of course, some among us are going to be entrenched in all kinds of varying forms of sin. Some of us are going to experience same-sex attraction in a broken world. Some of us are going to struggle with gender identity. Others of us are going to be entrenched in, in heterosexual lust. Others still are going to be tempted with materialism or lust for power. Of course, some of us are going to chuck it all and give in to hedonism and say, just give me what's mine and let me go. Of course, sin will have its influence in a broken world. But church, the God who created the world in all of its beauty, in all of its brilliance, the God whose temple was very good, and the God who chose to dwell within it, is also the God who's busy restoring the world to its glorious function, beginning with the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, begun at Calvary, and culminated in the resurrection when Jesus returns. He's going to finish the job. Praise God. Church, the good life is found by participating in God's rest under the authority and safety of God's reign. And I want to warn you, as I think Moses was warning his readers, our culture sells us a a bill of goods. Our society offers so much less than God's design and whether it's the vain pursuit of significance through sexual orientation or gender identity or materialism or power, any pursuit of progress that doesn't lead us back to the design of the temple, back to the creator, to an experience of God's rest and God's reign, it leaves us no closer to the good life than it did 20 or 200 or 2,000 or 6,000 or more years ago. Friends, I, I ask you, Will you accept the good life as God offers it? Yeah, things are messed up right now. But Jesus came. He he cleans up the mess. And friends, if you will, if you'll submit to his reign and his rest, you can live with God in the good life. (laughs) But you have to trust Jesus. And you know what happens when you do? God's going to use you to be an extension of that rest and that reign. To those around you. Let's pray. God, I, I confess this morning that as I talk about our society, our culture, it's very easy for me to point a finger and to avoid the reality that when I point a finger, there are three more pointing back right at me. God, we all struggle with sin in its many and varying forms. We all struggle with its influence, with the effects of it. Some of us are struggling today, not not because of personal sin necessarily, although we all have that, but some of us today are struggling because the effects of sin mean that our loved one isn't with us anymore. The effects of the fall mean that we're struggling physically with some disease or or some mental illness. The effects of the fall mean mean that here we are uh, without that that concept of the good life that, 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 that we want so deeply and so badly. 
God, turn our, our eyes, turn our mind's attention not to social progress and, and, and change, although we want every person to value every other one as those created in your image. But God, may we not look forward, but may we look back. <laughs> may we look to you who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. We love you and we trust you for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, would you stand and let's sing to the God who reigns, to the God who invites us into rest. This is our Father's world. This is my